you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open them, please, to the very first gospel. Matthew chapter 27, to be specific. I'd like us to read a few verses, beginning with verse 57. The Easter story of Joseph of Arimathea. And in Matthew 27, beginning with verse 57, we read the words of Matthew. When the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate, the Roman governor, and requested the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered to Joseph. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and then he left. Let me be very clear, Easter weekend is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Other things might be part of it. But the center and circumference of Easter weekend, Passion Week, is the Lord Jesus Christ. His death, His burial, and His glorious resurrection. Now I'm very much aware, as you are, there's some secularist and there's also some religionist who would argue with you to their blue in the face that the Lord Jesus did not die on the cross, he was not buried in a tomb, and that the entire Easter story, including his resurrection, is nothing but a deception and a hoax. I was reading one so-called scholar, an academic egghead, if you will, and this is what he said, I paraphrase it, but this is in essence what he said about the death of our Lord, the burial of our Lord, and the resurrection of the Lord. He said, Jesus faked his death on the cross. He hypnotized himself into a trance and pretended to be dead. Into his tomb, this so-called expert says, an imposter was placed. A man disguised to look like Jesus was put there, but it wasn't Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus was nothing more than a cleverly devised lie by a group of men who call themselves disciples, but they were nothing but con men. And they went back and stole the body of the imposter, hid it away, and disposed of it. There was no death on the cross. There was no burial of Jesus in a tomb. There was no resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. 
Now, this skeptic, this scoffer, this doubter, and there's plenty like him, they certainly have a right to be wrong, do they not? I sometimes wish that we could convince them that their thinking is highly flawed. I wonder if this academic egghead who wrote all that would allow us to beat him with a Roman cat of nine whip 39 times. That's a whip with nine little whips attached to it. So you're getting ten whoopings with every lick. And attached to those little whips is glass and rock and metal. So when it hits the flesh, it digs into the flesh and rips the flesh out. I wish these skeptics and scoffers would let us flog them 39 times, almost to the point of death, with the Roman catanine. Then I wish they would let us take our open hand and slap them repeatedly in the face. And take our closed fist and then punch them repeatedly in the face, so much, in fact, that their face will be obliterated. You'll not know who they are. I, I then would wish they would let us spit in their face and call them every profane, curse word, and vulgar word known to man. And then put a crown of thorns on their head. And by the way, those thorns in Israel are about an inch and a half long. They're not stickers. They look like nails. And let us drive it into their skull. And then I wish they would let us hang them on a cross. The most excruciating way of execution man has ever known. The Romans didn't invent it, but they made it into an art. I wish they'd let us crucify them. And let them hang on the cross for six hours in a blazing sun. And then, to top it all off, we'll take a spear and jam it in their side. And then they can tell us, Jesus faked it all. I wonder what happened, would happen to them. Friends, make no mistake about it. Our Lord's death was real. Our Lord's burial was real. Jesus came out alive. That's real. It was a public record in that day. It may not be a public record today because we've got so much fake news. But in that day, there was legitimate reporting. And the religious leaders knew it was true. The Roman governor knew it was true. The Roman soldiers knew it was true. The high priest knew it was true. The disciples knew it was true. The crowd knew it was true. Family knew it was true. Friends knew it was true. Even the foes knew it was true. They knew that this was true. Jesus indeed died on that cross. He indeed was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he came out alive and he forever lives. This morning, we're going to look at the Easter story just a little bit differently. We're going to look at a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He's a part of the Easter story. 
But he's a part of the Easter story that most of us don't know much about. Because most of the time, Joseph, and by the way, he's mentioned in all four Gospels, most of the time he's in the shadows. He's a secondary actor on the platform. But for a brief period of time, three hours in fact, he comes out of the shadows into the light. He goes from a secondary role in the Easter story to a primary role. He becomes a headliner for just a few hours. And I want us to look at his story this morning. Now pay attention. It's not just his story. It's your story. And my story. Because the Easter story doesn't end at Easter. It continues on in the lives of everybody that's here. One way or the other. Let me give you some things about Joseph of Arimathea that you might need to know to help you understand the kind of man he was, to know why he did what he's going to do. The first thing I want you to know is he was rich. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because that's what it says in verse 57. Matthew 27, 57. When the evening was come, there came a poor man. Is that what it says? says, a rich man from Arimathea, whose name was Joseph. Now, this word rich is translated from a Greek word that means to have wealth that goes not only to the top of the brim, but to have wealth that overflows the top of the brim, fills up the saucer which the cup is in, and goes over the saucer onto the table, which it sits. Let me say that again. This word for rich isn't a common, ordinary rich. This guy, to use common vernacular, is filthy rich. The wealth that he possesses has filled up his cup. It overflows his cup. It fills up the saucer, which the cup is sitting in. It overflows the saucer. This man's wealth is great. His last name could have well been Rockefeller or Kennedy or Zuckerberg or Gates. I'm telling you, he's rich beyond anything we can imagine. Now, for those of you who think it's a sin to be rich and it's holy to be poor, you're wrong. Money is neutral. It's how we handle the money that God entrusts to us that makes it good or bad, righteous or wicked. Many people have said it and said it well. Money is a wonderful servant, but it's a terrible master. And Joseph, he was rich, he had wealth. Secondly, I want you to see something else about him. In the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, verse 38, we learn that he is a secret follower of Jesus. Secret. That word secret means he was quiet about his faith. He he hid his faith. 
He had a faith that was non-conspicuous. He was a secret agent for Jesus, you might say, if there's such a thing. Why was he quiet? Why was he silent? Why was he secret about his faith? Because he was afraid. He was afraid that if he said too much about Jesus, if he tried to do too much for Jesus in his position and the time in which he lived, that the religious leaders would turn on him like they were turning on Jesus. They would arrest him. They would beat him. They might even crucify him too. That Pontius Pilate might arrest him and put him in prison like he wanted to do with Jesus. He was a secret follower because he was afraid. Can I ask you a question? Are you a secret follower? Because you're afraid? You won't bow your head at work or school and thank the Lord for your food because you're afraid somebody sitting next to you will see you and they will laugh at you and criticize you and mock you. Are you a secret follower? Are you a fan who hides their team? Are you a soldier who puts down the flag? Are you a police officer that hides his badge? You say, Pastor, that'd be silly. People, fans don't hide their team. Soldiers, are they serve the country of the flag that's over them. Officers show their badge. Should not Christians show Jesus? So Joseph was a rich man, and we're going to see God's going to use his riches in a little while. He was a secret follower of Jesus. He loved the Lord, but he didn't want nobody to know about it. Thirdly, in Mark chapter 15, verse 43, we find that he's a high-ranking official of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the Jewish people at that time. It was composed of 70 men that made up two religious sects called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the legalists. The Sadducees were the liberals. They did not like each other. They did not get along with each other except to crucify Jesus. And Joseph was part of that group. He was a power broker. He was a man of gravitas. He was a big shot, respected for his authority as a member of the ruling elite of the Sanhedrin. He was also, according to the Bible, Luke chapter 23, verse 50, he was a good man. He was a good man. Most of the politicians and religious leaders in Jesus' day were anything but good. Most of them were as crooked as a dog's hind leg. But Joseph had some character about him. 
He was a man of integrity, not just in the synagogue, but outside in the public. He was a man who told the truth. He was honest. He was trustworthy. He was a good man. He wanted to do right. Even though he was afraid, he wanted to do right. Now think about all this. He's rich. He's a secret follower of Jesus. He's a high-ranking religious official in the Sanhedrin. He's a good man. He has integrity. He's also skilled in the Word of God. In Luke chapter 23, verse 51, it says he was looking for the Messiah. That tells me that he, he had a Bible. Now, the Bible that he had was the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't in his possession. It hadn't been finished. But he, what he had was from Genesis to Malachi. He had a Bible. When he read his Bible, he understood that God was going to send a Messiah into the world. When he read his Bible, he understood that this Messiah would have certain credentials that would tell everybody he's the Messiah. And as Joseph is reading his Bible, studying his Bible, getting a word from God through his Bible, he's watching Jesus. He's listening to Jesus. He's seeing what Jesus is doing. And he says, Bing! That's him. That's the Messiah. He fits all the credentials. He's doing all the things that the, the prophet said the Messiah would do. He came to see that Jesus himself was the Messiah. The Savior of the world. One more thing about him. He was very courageous. In verse 58, it says, He went to Pilate and he begged for the body of Jesus. Now, you might think that's not a big deal. What, what's the big deal about going to Pilate and saying, Pilate, Jesus is dead, his body's on the cross, I'd like to have the body? Well, let me tell you why it was dangerous to do that. First of all, Pontius Pilate was fed up to hear with this Jesus stuff. He's tired of listening to it. He's tired of talking about it. He's already washed his hands of it, as you know. He just wants it to go away. Too much drama. And so if Joseph goes to Pilate, Pilate might say, Listen, you can have the body of Jesus. In fact, you can hang right next to it and crucify him. That could have very well happened. The religious leaders, who he was a part of, could have said, why do you want the body of Jesus? Are you a follower of his? Maybe we should arrest you. Maybe we should beat you. Maybe we should crucify you if you're a follower of him. So there was real danger in him stepping out. But he stepped out. Why? Why did he all of a sudden become brave? Where up to this time, 
He's been hidden and secretive in the shadows. Because Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At 6 o'clock, Passover was going to begin. Pay attention. He had three hours to get the body of Jesus off that cross, prepared for burial, and buried. If he did not do that in that three-hour span, the Romans would have left his body on the cross and let the vultures come and eat the flesh of Jesus. Then they would have taken what was left of the skeleton of Jesus and threw it in the trash dump and let the wild dogs come eat the bones. They would have desecrated the body of the Savior. He says, I can't allow that to happen. So he goes to Pilate. He says, I need that body. Pilate gives it to him. He takes the body back. And he has three hours, a three-hour window to properly prepare that body for a proper burial before the Passover begins and he has to stop. And it's interesting, if you read the narrative, he spares no expense. This man that was a fraidy cat, this man that was scared, this man that was so cowardly up to this point, a crisis comes and he steps up and shows his true colors. Most people will show their true colors in a crisis if they never will in anything else. You can find out who's brave when you're in combat and who's not so brave. Somebody has said, cowards die many deaths, but a brave man will only die once. And Joseph said, I will no longer be afraid, I'll no longer be a coward, I am going to step up. I'm going to do what's right. I'm getting the body of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about the money he put into this. Because remember, he's a wealthy man. The Bible says that him and Nicodemus together brought 75 pounds of aloe, myrrh, and other preservatives to put on the body of Jesus. In other words, this is almost like a wax. They covered his body in to seal everything up. Then they brought fragrances because the stench of someone who has died can get a little bit nauseating, particularly in the heat. So they sprayed aroma into the air, very expensive aroma, to go with these 75 pounds of very expensive preservatives on the body of Jesus. Then they wrapped the body of Jesus in white linen, never used before white linen. Not cloth, not cotton, not polyester. They wrapped his body in white linen. And then they put his body in a new tomb that Joseph had made for himself for his day of death. Now, I don't know how much all of this cost in today's dollars, but I can tell you what. Probably you're looking at thirty to $40,000 he put into the body of Jesus because he felt it was the right thing to do.
And it was. And then on top of all of that, the Bible says he had a stone, a round stone that looked like a giant wheel, moved to cover up the tomb where nobody could steal the body of Jesus. That word great refers to the weight of that stone, and many people believe it was about 4,000 pounds. And he did all of this in three hours to make sure Jesus had a proper, dignified, royal uh, burial before Passover began. This is what he did. This is his contribution to the Easter story. Because God knew in 2019 there would be eggheads like the professor we talked about who would say that Jesus didn't really die. He wasn't really buried. He didn't really come out of the tomb alive. And Joseph can speak up and say, I know he was dead. I took his body off the cross. I prepared it for burial. I put him in my tomb. And I can tell you when I came back on that Sunday, the first day of the week to my tomb, he wasn't there. But let's close. You say, Pastor, that's a wonderful Easter story. Can we go? No, not yet. I know, I know you got a ham waiting on you. Or something like that. Well, what does that mean to us? Whenever you read the Bible and look at a story, if all you get out of it is the historical narrative, you haven't got anything. What does it mean to you and I right here, right now, what we just talked about and read about? Three things I want to give you real quick. First of all, when we look at the life of Joseph, it tells us there is a time in our life when we need to set aside our fears, our intimidations, our shame, our embarrassment, our worries about what somebody else will think or feel or say or do. There will be a time in our Christian life when we need to stand up for Jesus. We need to speak out for Jesus. We need to step forth and serve Jesus. We need to come out of the closet and be seen and heard for Him. Because we've got too many secret agent Christians out there, and we need you to step up, and me to step up. Isn't that what Joseph did? There was a need. He only could do something. Nobody else could. He did it. So he stood up and he spoke out and he stepped forth. We need to tell others. We need to stop our silence and speak. We need to stop our stillness and serve. We need to come out of the shadows of intimidation and fear into the light of bravery and courage. Do we not? 
The hour was late for him to do it, and the hour's late for us. What's got to happen in your home for you to stand up for Jesus? What more's got to happen to get your attention where you will stand up and speak out for Jesus? What more's got to happen in our society for God's people to stand up and speak out for Jesus? What more's got to happen to this country before we'll stand up and speak out for Jesus? The time in the hourglass of sand is moving so quickly. And if we don't do something soon, there'll be no need to stand up or speak out. Because all will be lost. But the second thing we learn from him is not only is there a time to stand up and speak out for Jesus, and now's the time as it was with him, there's also a time to use our wealth and our resources for God's work. I told you Joseph was a wealthy man. Probably had more money in his bank account than we'll have in our lifetime. Combined bank accounts. He finally decided to use it for the kingdom. What do we do with our wealth? What do we do with the resources that God's given us, whether it just be a little bit or whether it be a lot? Do we waste it on excess, selfish excess? I asked a man one time, how big of a house do you need? How many houses do you need? How many cars do you need? How many boats do you need? How much jewelry do you need? How much clothing do you need? How much this do you need? How much that do you need before it becomes overkill? And yet some of us, we take what God gives us and we just waste it on excess. Or we hoard it in the bank. We're going we're gonna to save it for later, for a rainy day. And Some of us are 85 and 90 years old and it's still sitting there. The Lord wants us to circulate money, not sit on it. Some of us give it away to things that, quite frankly, it gets wasted on wickedness. We enable our children to be wicked and we pay their way to do it. Are you listening to me? We wonder why our children don't listen to us, it's because we finance their wickedness. Because we feel guilty that we didn't do this when they were young, or we didn't do that when they're young. And so eat up with guilt, we feel like we got to do it. So we give them money to buy their booze and their drugs and sleep and have immoral sex, and then wonder why they don't respect us. Some of us worship our money as a god. Almighty dollar. There's a time when we need to start putting back into the kingdom what God has given us. Joseph realized that. 
And from that day forward, he would be a giver to the kingdom, not a hoarder. You see, you can't take nothing with you. I've been in the ministry 33 years. I do about 100 funerals a year. I've seen a lot of crazy stuff. I can tell you a lot of crazy stories. But I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. And if you're not careful where you go, it'll burn if you could. And then lastly, and we're through, what can we learn from Joseph? Number one, we learn there is a time when we need to stand up, we need to speak out, and we need to serve the Lord. There will be a time when you need to do that. Why not today? There will be a time when you need to take the wealth that God gave you, whatever wealth it is, and wisely plan how to put it back into the kingdom from the king who gave it to you. That you can make a difference in the lives of people for eternity. And then lastly, it's time for us to have our own Easter story. Suppose we were alive in Jesus' day. Suppose we were there. What would be said about you and I in the Easter story? What would be said? What's our Easter story? In closing, let me ask you some questions. You answer them in your mind, but you answer them. Do you believe right now, as you're looking at me, listening to me, do you believe right now that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? Okay? Do you believe that? Not does your neighbor believe it. Not does the person in front or behind you believe it. Not does mom and dad believe it. Do you believe it? Second question. Do you believe that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross when he shed his blood and died for you? That through him you can be forgiven. Do you believe that? That on the cross, Jesus Christ shed his precious blood, gave his precious life, paid for your sins and my sins, that we could be forgiven once and for all and forever right there. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus was buried for your sins? That your sins could be put with him in the grave and not only forgiven, but forgotten forevermore? Do you believe that? Question number four. Do you believe that Jesus physically arose from the grave, walked out of the tomb alive, and he lives to give you and I a new life too, an abundant life, eternal life, one day here, one day there? Now, you've answered those questions. You've either answered yes or you've answered no. According to your answers, would you stake your life in eternity on what you just said? According to what you just said, you answered those questions. Are you willing to stake your earthly life 
and eternal life on your answers. If you say, I am, I'm going to ask you, if you're not saved, to receive Jesus Christ this morning as your personal Savior. You said you believe all of that. Why would you not then come and give your life to Jesus? Would you make that decision to give your life Jesus public? No longer a secret agent. I'm going to make my faith public. I'm going to testify of my faith that I receive today and make public in this church out there. I'm going to let people know I have decided to follow Jesus. And I'm not turning back and I'm not ashamed of it. And I'm going to follow in believer's baptism. At a later date, I'm going to be baptized to publicly identify myself with the one who died for me, lives for me, and coming for me. And I'm going to live for him all the days of my life. I am going to make a public declaration of these things. No more in shadows. No more behind the scenes. No more shaking my knees and cowering. I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to be brave. I'm going to do what's right. Would you do that? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.